Hey everyone, it's Marielle. And before we get to the show, I want to warn you. What you are about to hear contains explicit language, adult themes, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is strongly advised. Enjoy the show. Welcome. Hello. Ooh, your nails. I didn't even see those. I showed them next year's upstairs. Really? Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> More stone than I thought. Welcome to the Women of Death Row. We are a podcast. Um, <laughs> I forgot what I was going to say. Ooh, I remembered. Chiefs I- won the Super Bowl. If oh, yeah. anyone didn't already know. They won In case you haven't heard, there was a game last weekend called the Super Bowl. Yeah, Kansas City won. Whoop! First time in 50 years. That's, That's a amazing. lot of years. We'll do it again next year. Probably. I will not be at the parade next year. No. I, it was too fucking cold. Yeah. And too long. Too much standing. Too much standing. And weird, act, weird children and not good parenting. Lack of supervision of children. A lot of just how sexual promiscuity. Yeah, how old would you say those two were? I would probably say 12, thir- no, I would probably say 14. Yeah, 13, 14. Mom, or who we assume is their mom, like literally sitting in the chair next to them, they're like making out, uh-huh. smoking, just <laughs> they world were, class. It was great. Kansas City's finest. <laughs> anyway, I'm Amanda. I'm Marielle. Welcome. Hello. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming back if this is not your first rodeo. This is episode 15. Oh, shit. One five. Um, who went first last time? Moi. So it's me first? Sure. All right, I got kind of a long one. Can you? So I'm going to start first with like a quote about this woman. It's kind of similar to the case I did last week about Ruth Ellis, yes. where it's like that, only this is like the U.S. version. Oh. Um, and the crime's different. So this quote from a California polyhistory lecturer, Kathleen Kearns, wrote in the book Proof of Guilt, if any life could be squeezed into a one-dimensional archetype of the bad and beautiful female, it was that of Barbara Graham. Ooh. Her life story might have sprung from the imaginations of any of a number of hard-boiled fiction writers specializing in stories of voluptuous women who brandished their seductive charms as lethal weapons. So Barbara Elaine Ford was born in Oakland, California on June 26, 1923 to a young unwed mother named Hortense Ford. Hortense? Hortense. Uh, Hortense earned her living through sex work. Barbara was two when her teenage mother... Mother. (laughs) (laughs) This is German. Mother. (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, So she was two when her teenage mother was sent to a reform school. Her father was absent from the time of her birth. Nothing about him. So Barbara was raised by strangers and extended family. And although she was naturally intelligent, she had a limited education. In 1936, around age 13, Barbara went... My God. (laughs) Barbara ran away and when she was found, officially became a ward of the state. She was classified as a wayward girl and immoral due to her sexual activity. Hmm. A report from juvenile court in 1937 described her mother's parenting as questionable and that she was a poor moral influence. Barbara later would say that her mother didn't care whether she lived or died, just as long as she didn't bother her. Huh. Yeah. And shortly before all of this, around age 12, a welfare worker who was assigned to her case tried to adopt her. The woman said at the time that... The poor little girl didn't have anyone to truly love her. She was the most beautiful thing in the world, a little doll. She was always lively and full of fun. Um, So that woman had taken her in for a few months, but Hortense White would not allow her to adopt her. And she said that she was a horrible and spiteful woman, and I believe she truly hated her daughter. Wow. So released from reform school in 1939, Barbara tried to make a new start for herself. She married and enrolled in a business college and soon had her first child. The marriage was not a success, and by 1941, she was divorced. Over the next several years, she was married twice more and had a second child, but each of these attempts uh, normally failed. So as a teenager, she was arrested for vagrancy and like homelessness and Mm -hmm. sentenced to serve time at Ventura State School for Girls, the same reform school where her mother had been. Barbara was thrown in with all the, like, the, like, quote, like, hardcore delinquents. 
So she had to toughen up, and so she adapted, and she became a great fist fighter. She would also use her charm, and she ran away from there twice, hitchhiked back to Oakland. Her mom turned her in. Uh, Then the school struck a deal that if Barbara would at least complete one year of school, she could be released. And they thought it would inspire her to want to continue her education, but she did she not. She took that deal. She's and like, all right, bye, like, peace. <laughs> One year? Um, nothing. Bye. Mm-hmm. After this string of failures, Barbara returns to Oakland, determined not to depend on her mother. Some girls she grew up with had been getting spending money by hanging out near the Oakland Army Base, Oakland Naval Supply Depot, and Alameda Naval Air Station. She's said to have become a sex worker during World War II. The military men called these girls seagulls. They named them after the hungry birds that surrounded the bay. Oh, wow. Um, Barbara was dissatisfied with this work and knew she had other options. She enrolled in National Business College, hoping to learn the skills of an office job. And while she was in business school, she meets a man named Harry. They became intimate and she became pregnant, so they got married. She was only 17. She had to get her mother's permission to get married yeah she had a little boy and she named him after harry things were going well until she got pregnant again um so she wasn't working because a mother was not supposed to work and so financial struggles caused strain in the marriage as well as you know they rushed into it and then her past caught up to her uh harry was oblivious before but it's rumored that hortense dropped the bomb on harry and like about barbara's past Mm -hmm. and he was turned off by it and he was given custody of their children when they divorced so now that I'm trying to like read it fast because it's long. Now that Barbara's seemingly traditional and normal life had been shattered, she returned to the Seagulls, who were planning a trip to Long Beach and San Diego. This is when she committed to sex work rather than just having burgers and sh- shakes with the men in uniform. Because like before, it was just like, oh, we we're gonna get some free meals mm-hmm. at least, maybe a little spending money. Like, give me bus yeah. money, I'll go, I'll keep it, pocket it, whatever. She was arrested many, many times, but let it roll off her back, and she'd pay the fines and then return to the street sh- streets. She yeah, said, it's like, what other choice did she have? Right. She said at the time, sure, I'm a prostitute. A damn good one. Why is it that people make such a big deal about sex? It's part of our natural makeup. When we're hungry, we go to the grocery store or restaurant. When you need sleep, you sleep. If you want sex, why not get it? What's the difference? Fair. <laughs> one sailor agreed with her philosophy and asked her to marry him. They got married, and then down the road, he kind of had an epiphany about what situation he just got himself in to and they annulled the marriage. At 22, with her good looks, red hair, and sex appeal, she left the Bay Area for San Francisco. I'm not going to sing it. Where she worked for a time for a brothel for like the biggest like head honcho brothel madam named Sally Stanford. Her goal was to work her way up to Knob Hill, which uh, Knob Hill is like the ritzy area of um, San Francisco. So she wanted to go to like freak from medium class to high class. She was making good money and she could buy nice clothes, go out and have fun. And then she soon became involved in gambling and had numbers of friends who were ex-convicts and career criminals. She had actually committed perjury as an alibi witness for two petty criminals and was sentenced to five years at the California Department of Corrections in Tehachapi. Tehachapi. Damn it. I would practice that earlier. I've had to say that place, but there we go. Never heard of it. Her sentence was suspended and she only had to serve one year and five years probation. After her stint in prison at 24 years old, Barbara moved to Reno, Nevada oh, for a fresh start. That's legal. a great place. She saw an ad for a nursing job in Tonapa. Tonapa? Wait, Fuck isn't her. sex work legal in Reno? I mean, this is 50s. I have no idea. She worked in a hospital and as a waitress. And in 1953, she married a bartender named Henry Graham. She had a third child with him. And then Barbara being Barbara, she was like afraid that she would get pregnant again and she got bored so she hopped on a bus to los angeles she got a room on hollywood boulevard and returned to sex work she was known as what they called at the time a freelance bar girl (laughs) which was basically like women who would go to the bars and flirt with men etc and then like see where it goes she got to know the bartenders one of them being harry graham i mean henry graham can't keep them straight. <laughs> so many Davids, so many Henrys, so many Harrys. <laughs> Despite his boring looks, there was something about him. He was clean cut on the outside, but unsuspectingly introduced Barbara to drugs. Barbara said they messed around with marijuana and laudanum pills. Laudanum is basically like opiates. Oh. It's, um, it contains almost all of the opium alkaloids, including morphine and codeine. Holy shit. Yeah. 
And people historically were using it just to treat like anything, pain, cough, everything, giving it to infants. Yeah. Henry also introduced Barbara to a low criminal named Emmett Perkins. Emmett ran a lot of like gambling rings and she was hired like as like kind of like a customer magnet, like she would lure Mm -hmm. men into the gambling ring. Barbara and Henry got close. They started living together. They eventually get married and pregnant shortly after. Henry's on his way to rock bottom because of his addictions and drugs, and he began abusing heroin and was relying on Barbara's income. Barbara was stressed with that situation. She began coping by using heroin herself, Uh, but she handled her addiction better probably because she had to hold it together and make money. And then one day, Henry stole her stash, and she lost her shit. She was fucking pissed. She took all her belongings, all her drugs, all everything, and then went to Emmett's home. And he was like, oh, of course you can stay. Where are the kids? Right? With their fathers. Like, she didn't get custody of any of them. Because I remember, okay, so the first to have cut or in custody of dad mm-hmm. and now this one i guess will probably become a ward of the state i don't remember well maybe i wrote it somewhere <laughs> um, so the two of them began an affair i assume at some point her and henry got divorced in burbank california on march 11th 1953 a gardener parks his truck in front of a house this was the house of a woman named mabel monahan hmm. um, and this man is her gardener he heads up to her front door to speak with her but he's alarmed when he noticed the front door is slightly ajar and her home had been ransacked and there were blood stains all over the walls, floor and ceiling. He noticed a trail of blood leading down a hallway and immediately called the police. He's like, I'm not fucking going there. Um, So Mabel was found halfway hanging out of a closet. She was bound with a strip of bed sheet, a pillowcase tied tightly around her neck by another strip of bed sheet. And when the pillowcase is removed, police knew she had been beaten repeatedly with a blunt instrument and their theory is she was pistol whipped and then the coroner actually found that the cause of death to be asphyxiation due to strangulation so the 12 blows her head she would have most likely survived had it not been for the bed sheet tied around her neck so her home was torn apart it looked like a robbery a furnace vent was ripped out of the floor the blood patterns make it obvious like she'd been dragged from room to room and beaten along the way There was no physical evidence of any possible suspect. The police were surprised when they found a couple of handbags hanging in a closet, including one black purse that was untouched and holding $400 and about $10,000 in jewelry. So the suspect's Mm. a fucking idiot. A preliminary investigation discovered that her daughter Iris had recently been married to a Las Vegas gambler named Luther Schurer, and they'd previously lived in the home before Mabel. And Mabel and her son-in-law, Luther, they had a really good relationship. He'd visit her whenever he was in town. And then there's this rumor that he stashed a safe in her home. And people believe that he kept large amounts of money for safekeeping at her home. Hmm. So police take this info and they confidently say, like, all right, the motive is robbery. And then Mabel's daughter, Iris, promptly announced a $5,000 reward for any info leading to an arrest. And that's when a small town criminal named, and God, his fucking name, it's doesn't, it sounds so problematic. His name, Indian George Allen. And I don't know if that's an identifier of his race or if that's what his first name is. (laughs) But that's how he was identified as. George Allen phoned a Burbank police department and told him that 16 month, months earlier in 1951, he and four other men had conspired to break into Mabel's home sometime when she would not have been there. But they didn't go through with it. Yet he suspected that one of the men in the group pursued the idea with someone else. George gave police the name Baxter Shorter, who was an ex-con and known burglar. Another person interviewed named Jack Santo. Police were able to track down Baxter easily because, you know, he was a known criminal. He denied everything, but then he returned later to speak with the police and tell them this story. He'd received a call from a stranger named Emmett, and this guy proposed a, quote, business opportunity, which would include two others. Baxter met Jack and John in El Monte. One of them asked Baxter if he's interested in robbing this house in Burbank. He said he is not enthusiastic or convinced that there was a treasure trove in a safe, but but eventually he was like There's talked treasure. into it. There is treasure. Another meeting was set at a drive-in on Ventura Boulevard, and this is where Baxter and the other men, including Emmett, would plot their crime. 
Emmett was with a good-looking woman with reddish-brown hair who they would call Mary. Baxter was not down with having a woman present, but Emmett said that she was necessary because the single woman wasn't going to answer the door for some strange man. Right. The following night, they meet up at Rachel, the steakhouse restaurant, which is actually a very famous old school restaurant in the Valley, which we should go to. Is it? Oh, it's still there? Yeah. It worked. They go to Mabel's house. Mabel lets Mary in when she asks her to use her phone. Once inside, all but Baxter went in. Baxter waited in the car. It seemed that he was like code mm-hmm. cracker or whatever. Jack comes out and tells him they can't find the safe. So Baxter enters the home and this is when he sees Mabel on the floor, lying half out of the closet mm-hmm. just as she would later be discovered. She was badly bleeding, groaning loudly through a gag that had been put in her mouth. She was already bound, John beside her, and Mar- Mary beside her yelling, shut up, and John trying to save her. John actually called an ambulance, but it uh, actually gave them the wrong address. Yeah. God. Emmett Perkins was well known to police for his gambling reigns and they easily tracked him down. Though they couldn't definitively say about Mary, they could recall that Emmett was with a woman working for him, luring the men, and her name was Barbara Graham, but she would go by Mary when she was Hmm. doing that job. That was her work name. Yeah. So the first guy to get arrested was John. He actually lived with his girlfriend who wasn't home when he was taken into custody and she thought he'd been kidnapped, called the police reporting him missing. And then they had to clarify like, no, he's been arrested and now the story's been leaked to the media. Baxter declined protective custody and then the following night he's taken by gunpoint and so another story breaks. Police finally decide like they have to go public with the whole story on their suspects. So there's a hunt for the fugitives and eventually Barbara's heroin habit is what got her caught. She tried buying heroin from an undercover female officer and at the time Barbara had bleached her hair blonde as her disguise (laughs) yeah she went to score she shot up in the bathroom and then she got on a bus three lady detectives follow barbara to a trashy apartment and then uh this is a great part police busted in on a nude barbara she hops off the sofa in shock and then jack santo also naked was on top of the bed with an erection then Emmett comes out of the bathroom and he too is butt ass naked. <laughs> like an imagine, orgy. yeah. One person stated Santo had never lost an erection faster. <laughs> wow. Yeah. They arrest everybody and there's still no trace of Baxter Short. So he's their star witness. They're kinda like, oh shit, like how are we yeah. gonna indict them? And then in jail, Barbara befriends a 20-year-old divorcee named Donna Prowl. She's in jail for killing someone while drunk driving. So Barbara sort of takes the younger woman under her wing because at this point, Barbara's like 30. Police officer... Wait a minute. No. Oh, that's what it says. Police offered... Not police officer. Police offer <laughs> John true immunity, and he couldn't start singing fast enough. Right. So he tells them that Baxter had been in the car, didn't witness the beating... And John claims Barbara was pistol whipping Mabel and yelling at Emmett to knock her out. And this is when Baxter came in and saw them over her body. So now the DA is like confident in indicting the suspects with murder and going to trial. They indict John as well for optics and immediately release him and give him protection. So John now being the star witness breaks to the media and Barbara's fucking furious. She said, I may go to the fucking gas chamber, but I'll sure as hell take some people with me. And then she starts confiding in Donna and they begin a sexual relationship. There's a ton of letters exchanged. Donna calls Barbara mommy and Barbara calls Donna candy pants, alluding to the taste of her regime candy pants wow Mm -hmm. media finds out about the same sex relationship everybody shook the notes are offered into evidence barbara had drew candy canes on the letters she would write to candy pants very scandalous candy pants (laughs) donna tells barbara she knows a guy who would give her a false alibi and barbara agrees so fast forward to the trial barbara arrives looking incredibly fucking glamorous The prosecution only has circumstantial evidence. They have the coroner testify, which was big because shortly after his testimony, Barbara's being escorted out and she fainted, sprained her ankle and delayed the trial. Barbara's co-conspirators testified that she had a more active role than just getting Mabel to open the door. And they give a very gruesome account of Barbara meeting, beating Mabel. And everyone's just like shocked and horrified that a woman could commit such evil acts. John was later um, called in the New York Times an overgrown boob. Which I don't know what, what that means, but I just thought I'd throw it in there. I don't know what that means. An Is that what you call a snitch? I don't know. Boob. 
That was the burn in 1950. So Barbara... That's the name of this episode, Overgrown Boom. Oh, perfect. (laughs) Boom. Uh, Barbara realizes she probably... I'm sorry. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. What? So... Like, you're nursing or... I don't know. Like, you're a big baby? Like... Right. Boob. Like, why was boob an insult? Oh, maybe it's the same as calling someone a pussy. Maybe. Uh, so Barbara realizes she can't get away with this. She's always maintained that she didn't have any recollection of what happened. But then very last minute, she goes to her lawyer and tells him about her alibi. So the defense is confident about their new witness. But then he's called as a witness for the prosecution. So this fake alibi dude was an undercover cop. And so was Candy Pants. Oh, no shit. Yeah. So Barbara's plan falls apart. Barbara, Jack Santo, and Emmett Perkins were all sentenced to death for the robbery and murder. Barbara appealed her sentence while at the California Institution for Women. Her defense claimed that she was a desperate mother and her fake alibi was just because she was desperate and felt like that was her last chance and she was weeping during this testimony. But then the prosecution humiliates her when they bring out her love letters and they make her read them out loud and eventually she's like, fuck this, you read them. Turns out they're like just one sided letter because mm. Candy Pants was a cop. Yeah. Barbara Graham paced back and forth in the execution chamber holding cell at San Quentin Prison, just north of San Francisco. It was six o'clock in the morning. Her, excu- her execution was scheduled for 10. They got to San Quentin just before five o'clock, and she'd been taken nervous and trembling directly to the holding cell next to the gas chamber. Oh. Uh, Warden Harley O. Teets, a lot of boob stuff. <laughs> had ordered a large tarpaulin draped along the route to cover the chamber so she wouldn't see it. Uh, when Barbara Graham had arrived at his prison the previous day for her scheduled execution, Teets had personally... <laughs> Teets McGee is on vacation. <laughs> uh, he sat in the cell with her, asked her for a cigarette, helped her begin unwinding as much as she could. Uh, before he left her to settle in, he ordered that she be served as many double chocolate milkshakes as she wanted. And that was all she consumed for the rest of the night. Fuck yeah. Hell, double chocolate milkshakes. Mm-hmm. Wow. Early morning, June 3rd, 1955, Barbara in her red silks was waiting for her breakfast of a hot fudge sundae. Bitch, yes. Yeah. Uh, while she waited, she chain smoked camels in a black plastic cigarette holder. Every once in a while, she said to the Death Watch matron, I can't believe I only have four hours to live. I can't believe it. And the matron was like, maybe something will happen. Maybe you'll get a stay of execution. Hmm. And Barbara was like, oh, sure. I never got a break in my whole goddamn life. You think I'm going to get one now? Not a chance, lady. Not a chance in hell. And so now she's actually like being brought to the execution chamber. And she's like, I want to be blindfolded. I don't want to watch these people watch me die. And the matron had a sleep mask, and so she went and get a, got it out of her purse. It was a full minute before she heard the plunger-like sound of a cheesecloth bag containing two golf ball-sized cyanide pellets being lowered into a concrete vat of sulfuric acid directly beneath her chair. The sound, though very faint, startled her, and she tensed momentarily. Through a... Through a rubber tube attached to a stethoscope, diaphragm taped to her chest, then extending through an airtight portal to the exterior of the chamber, a doctor listened to her heart rate. It increased to a frenzy. Uh, her nostrils flared once briefly. She, uh, she head nodded, lips twitching, then slumped forward, chin on chest. She was pronounced dead. Oh, man. Yeah. She was buried in Mount Olivet Cemetery, San Rafael, California. I forgot there was a part before... She um, was put in there. Like one of the guards was like, "You just gotta take a deep breath, uh, ten oh. second inhale when you hear the cyanide pellet drop, and it'll be easier." She's like, "How the fuck would you know, you rascal?" That's what she said. Wow. Well, I'd never heard. Like I knew the gas chamber was used, but never like how. how? Like was it literally gas? But no, they dropped tablets of cyanide, mm-hmm. and you just wow. Yep. So Barb was the ideal subject for media coverage. In the 1950s, Los Angeles's five daily newspapers uh, were all fiercely competing for readers, and crime stories were always popular. As a woman accused of murder in the course of a robbery, which was called a man's crime, she was particularly attention-getting. The Los Angeles Examiner and Los Angeles Herald Express were both owned by William Randolph Hearst. Mm-hmm. who reportedly favored crime stories involving women. Ironic, because you know his daughter. 
Patty Hearst. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, yes, there's Shit. some irony wrapped in there. Especially when embellished by slangy tags, like Bloody Babs, a nickname <laughs> reputedly derived from Prosecutor Adolf Alexander's opening statement at trial. Uh, Barb was also tagged as the icy blonde with phrases like icy calm and stony attached to descriptions of her courtroom demeanor. Um, of course, the men did not get any nicknames. Right. <laughs> and then in 1990, a journalist did a detailed study of newspaper coverage of Barb's case and um, noted that all the papers failed to cover the story objectively and they all tended just to disregard legally significant developments in favor of speculative or sensational articles. So this was particularly evident in three areas. The constant emphasis on Barb's appearance, the assumption that she was guilty, and the focus on tangential often lured aspects of her personal life. Actress Suzanne Hayward won the Best Actress Academy Award for playing Barbara Graham in the movie I Want to Live, with an exclamation point, <laughs> in 1958, which strongly suggested that she was innocent, however much of the film is fictionalized. Mm. And then in the book that I quoted earlier, Proof of Guilt, Kathleen Kearns just takes the viewpoint that she was duped and had been victimized um, by this whole thing. She found that in the movie I Want to Live, it was basically a virtually accurate docudrama with the exception of three minor fictionalizations. The book's highly critical of the many sensationalized popular media treatments of, quote, bloody babs. Bloody bad. And then the jazz pop singer Nellie McKay had a touring production titled I Want to Live that tells the story through standard, original tunes, and dramatic interludes. Wow. So they pretty, like, sensationalized this and turned mm -hmm. this into, like, a... There's a few more things that they say about her. Like, uh, in much of the tr coverage, they called her... She was portrayed as a true crime vamp, callous, emotionless, overly concerned about her appearance, unremorseful, deceitfully seductive, as if that's her fault, wow. being beautiful. And then, like, they were, like, when she fell down the stairs, like, they, like, demonized her for that. When she fucking fainted, they said that she yawned and would stretch languorously. She can't do shit. Right. She studied her lacquered fingernails in court. And also her... Hair color was just obviously that of a guilty woman. Um, <laughs> yeah. One article referenced her strong hands, shapely thigh, bronze complexion, and tight-fitting summer weight suit, along with the comment that a specifically plainly dressed female jury didn't approve of her clothing. Haters. Mm-hmm. Male co-defendants' hair color and clothing were never noted. So the coverage of her physical appearance just, like, minimized the reportage on everything else mm -hmm. and, I mean, made everybody assume she's guilty. So I got my, uh, my sources were the book Proof of Guilt, the Encyclopedia of American Prisons, the Case of Barbara Graham, and Massacre of Innocence, and Decathlon of Death. Good job. That was interesting. Your turn. Bloody Babs. I don't know if I can top that one. <laughs> but that one particularly talked, like, just spoke of the bias that we're trying to, like, yeah, like, you encapsulated it in one story. Yep. And she was, like, the second woman to be executed in California. Like, of that century. Oh, interesting. Because yeah. I'm telling the story of the 15th woman sentenced to death in California. Mm. <laughs> All right. I am going to share with you um, a little story that involves Angelina Rodriguez. thought you were going to say Jolie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to tell you where, they're at, where Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie are at. On September 9th, 2000, at around 3 a.m., Angelina Rodriguez woke up and found her husband, Frank Rodriguez, face down on their bedroom floor. He would be pronounced dead, the cause of death unknown for several months. Angelina was charged for Frank's murder. She was convicted of first-degree murder with special circumstances, murder for financial gain, and attempting to dissuade a witness. Angelina Rodriguez grew up in a working-class neighborhood in Queens, New York. She was the youngest of two girls, and she was described as, like, the quote-unquote most troublesome. Angelina's father left the family. Her mother was a nurse and worked long hours to be able to send her daughters, um, Angelina and Gigi, to Catholic school ballet, cheerleading, and basketball. Angelina and her sister Gigi were cared for by relatives, which is 
pretty common in Latino families. Like, I don't think we ever saw an outside babysitter. No. <laughs> they were often watched by their grandfather who molested Angelina from age two until she was a teenager. Angelina would have an abortion as a teen as a result from her grandfather's years of sexual abuse. Fuck. And yeah. And as a way to cope with the sexual trauma and incest, Angelina created like an alter ego named Victoria. Oh. Yeah. So she, she was disassociating to you yeah. can't. That's like. Couldn't live in that reality. No, exactly. And her reality continues to be called into question, at least by me, not really much by everyone else throughout this, because it's pretty interesting. Angelina reports that she told relatives about the abuse, but that was met with shame, blame and no action. Her own sister, Gigi, stated she allowed it to happen. The abuse was occurring with other girls in the family. And Gigi reported that they were able to stop it when it needed to be stopped. Wow, Gigi. Gigi needs a lesson on power and control. So Angelina also attempted suicide multiple times. The first attempt was at age eight. Fuck. With over-the-counter pain relievers, which oh I'm guessing God. like a Tylenol or ibuprofen or aspirin. Jesus. At 16, she overdosed on sleeping pills, which resulted in hospitalization for depression. Oh God. Yeah. So Angelina had multiple very brief marriages. She married a boy from her neighborhood almost like at an impulse when she was 19 and they divorced a few months later. And then throughout this period of li her life, Angelina was described as like trying to find herself. She moved to Florida and enlist enlisted in the airport. <laughs> she enlisted as in the Air Force. <laughs> in the airport. What a shitty gig. I fucking hate the airport. That's why I always want to drive everywhere. <laughs> um, so she enlisted in the Air Force, became based in Colorado, where she met Tom Fuller, who was an athletic Mr. Wright. Three months later, she was pregnant. Angelina and Tom got married, and then they moved to Vanderburg, Vandenberg Air Force Base in California. <laughs> Fast forward two years, and Angelina and Tom's daughter Autumn is two, and they also have a baby named Alicia, Alicia who was born premature. In the first few months of Alicia's life, she was... Um, in the NICU for brachycardia, like slow heartbeat and other health concerns. It doesn't say how far along, how um, or premature she was, though. Gigi shared that this was one of the first times she had seen Angelina really become like grounded and confident in herself. She stated that if she could have done any job perfectly, it was being a mother. <laughs> That's about the only like, not the only, but Gigi goes back and forth a lot. She's an asshole. Mm. Typical older sister. <laughs> um i'll say <laughs> so tom fuller reported that the marriage was starting to disintegrate and angelina became super protective of autumn and alicia particularly with their afterlife he shared what? yeah like he made sure that they were christened just in case anything were to happen yeah weird right yeah so reality is like where are you right now angelina so on the morning of September 18th, 1993, Alicia, the youngest daughter, choked to death on the plastic nipple of her pacifier. Angelina told police that she found Alicia dead in her crib and the hard plastic part of it was on the floor. Tom later learned that in the weeks before Alicia died, Angelina purchased a $50,000 life insurance, insurance policy for Alicia. He also remembered that someone had warned the couple about those specific pacifiers being recalled. So it's like, is it a coincidence that this life insurance policy came out? Right. And then this, you know, he's so, yeah, he goes back and forth about whether or not it was intentional, the death. Gigi doesn't believe Angelina would do that. Remember, she was like, she's like the perfect mom. I've never seen her more like grounded in her life. But in an interview, Angelina said that if she wanted her daughter to die, she would just let her die from the brachycardia, the slow heartbeat. Oh, yeah. There were opportunities. Right. Yeah. Excuse me, I don't think I prefaced that this article... I got most of this information from an article in the LA Times. It's called Fatal Lies from March 9th, 2005. And then Wikipedia, so... So Angelina wrote a letter to the person who wrote this specific article that referenced saying her daughters are like her world and her life and that she had finally found the love that she had always wanted. Because, you know, growing up, experiencing all that trauma she experienced it's like she doesn't know what love is and like when she had her kids she felt that 
So Tom and Angelina divorced, and they also reached a settlement with the manufacturer of the Pacifier Company for $750,000. Angelina got about like 250000 and she apparently bought a house, a car, and a boat. Whoa. After Alicia passed, Angelina's world began to change. Um, the death of, and the ch- of her child and then divorce from Tom. Angelina began lying her way through life. She started telling people she was pregnant with twins, even though she had her tubes tied or she had some surgery that left her infertile. Mm-hmm. When she never had the baby, she told people she fell down the stairs. She also totaled her car. That's really hard to say. And she said her boyfriend drove her off a cliff. Whoa, girl. Girl. So clearly she's going through something. She's just super dysregulated all the time. She got her cosmetology license, married a guy named John Combs, who was a truck driver. She divorced him a few months later because he was too possessive. She joined the Army National Guard, fell in love with another man who she says deserted her after she gave him 20 grand. Wow. Yeah. Gigi described her sister as the boy who crawled wolf. Despite having like all that money from the settlement, she always had a story with why she needed money. And Gigi said that she became, quote unquote, flighty again. So in 1997, Angelina sold her house to a woman named Betty Haley. They would become best friends. Betty specifically said that she admired Angelina's lifestyle and whenever she wanted, she would buy it. Hmm. Yeah. So Frank and Angelina. Oh, that's the title. That's just my notes. Okay. So Frank Rodriguez and Angelina Rodriguez, whose last name was not Rodriguez, met in February 2000 at Angel Gate Academy, and uh, which was like a boot camp for wayward youth operated by the California National Guard. They were platoon sergeants when Angelina accused another staffer of sexual misconduct with a student. No one believed her but Frank, and they began dating. Any, like, little slip of attention that was positive. Yeah. So Frank was a devout Christian, no sex before marriage. They spent a lot of time praying together. Fun. (laughs) Sounds great. (laughs) Angelina wasn't really in love with Frank, but she said that he was grounded, really intelligent, and he loved her daughter, Autumn. Also, Frank and Angelina had a lot in common, like, on the surface. He was the oldest of six. He also grew up in kind of like a chaotic family. They moved from Connecticut to Texas and finally settled in central Illinois in the 70s. His dad was a doctor, but was also very jealous and abusive and had a drug and alcohol problem. And then he later left the family. And then his mother would become a single mom and raise the kids alone and work a lot. So they can kind of relate to those experiences. So um, relatives described Frank as a quiet, trusting man who took responsibility for his siblings. He left home, joined the Navy, married a hometown girl, and then he got his teaching degree. And he would become a teacher in special education at a Illinois school. So when Frank and his first wife divorced, he didn't have any money. The divorce left left him broke. He joined a church, stopped drinking and smoking, and he just became more hopeful for love. And he wanted to find someone who would love him for him. So Frank and Angelina married in April 2000. Within just a few days, they moved to Montebello into a house they could barely afford, um, given Frank was working as a teacher in a middle school. Yeah. So for a while, though, life was stable. But Angelina reported that Frank was becoming possessive and overly strict with her daughter, Autumn. And he insisted on being the only, the sole breadwinner. So, yeah, she said he was everything. She says, I was nothing. And then I just wanted out. Uh, However, Frank's sister and the rest of the family have like a counter story that Angelina was the one that was causing trouble in the marriage. And that Frank was so patient and that he would have given her anything. So in July 2000, Angelina allegedly persuaded persuaded Frank to buy a $250,000 life insurance policy and named her as the sole beneficiary. Don't ever do that. (laughs) Don't ever do that. (laughs) So it suggests let's go get the insurance policy. No. Nope. Like I recently, I, I got a life insurance policy at work. I don't know how it happened. It happened so fast. This representative came and she just like starts signing you up. It doesn't cost you anything. It's like $3,000. And I named Mariel as my beneficiary and I text her. It's only three grand. Don't. Don't try. Don't try anything. (laughs) So during Angelina's trial, a friend of hers testified that she started to talk about killing Frank, but everyone thought she was joking. And so according to the testimony, Angelina and her friends would like joke about 
how they would kill how she would kill Frank. And one person shared a story about how a woman tried to kill her husband with oleander, which is like a poisonous flower or something. And then another friend talked about how um, dogs often eat antifreeze because of the sweet taste. So it doesn't have like a distinctive taste other than it's sweet. And like you hear a lot, keep away from dogs because they'll lick it up. You know, dogs and dudes are the same thing. Right. In August 2000, Angelina started having an affair. She says she stole one of Frank's paychecks hid the money, and was planning to leave him to stay with her lover's family. Around that same time, according to the testimony, Frank found a natural gas leak coming from their dryer when Angelina was away for a weekend with her lover. Convenient. So on Wednesday, September 6th, 2000, Frank woke up feeling sick again. Apparently this had been happening before and he would wake up from now just feeling gross. Angelina um, would talk to the police and say that it's been days that he'd felt like himself. He would complain of having a headache and wouldn't be able to keep any food down. She told a story like two months earlier, he had similar symptoms and he would become suspicious that someone at work was trying to poison him and she rushed him to the hospital. However, at one point, Angelina had to like drag him to the emergency room again. And according to police, she had told the doctors like she doesn't know what's wrong. She's tried everything she knows. Um, Her mom was a nurse. She kind of knows what to do, but it didn't work. And the doctor said he has food poisoning. Go home, rest, drink lots of fluids, like especially give him Gatorade to build up those electrolytes. Uh So Angelina said she like put her husband to bed for the next couple of days playing nurse. Autumn was playing nurse as well, helping him um, take care of him. Mm. They nursed him with soup and Gatorade every few hours. And then at about 3 a.m. on September 6th, Angelina says she woke up to find Frank faced on the bedroom floor dead oh no yeah a few days later angelina told frank's sister she was pregnant with twins a story the same story she told people after alicia died her daughter so she talked to frank's mom janet and said you know angelina came to me and asked for help with like maternity stuff and money she asked for just straight up money janet baker said angelina you bring me a report that says you truly are pregnant and a dna test that is my grandson then we'll talk oh at the funeral, people would comment on, like, Angelina's lack of emotion. She would, like, a lot of people reported she was going around telling people at the funeral that he was poisoned by someone at work. In the limo ride to the cemetery, Frank's sister Shirley asked, how can someone just poison somebody? And Angelina said, there's lots of things you can use to poison people. Oh, my Botanical God. things, Oleander, for example. Oh, my God. Shut your mouth. Yeah. According to investigators, Angela's, Angelina's, have I been calling her Angela? No. Okay. Angelina's tenacity and greed are what sold her out. Frank's cause of death was still not determined. So the only thing that would suspect people is that she said that he was poisoned by someone at school. Mm. But they had no cause of death. So the county toxicologist tested Frank's blood for everything, like all types of drugs, any common poisons, but nothing would come back. And, of course, the insurance company won't pay out the insurance policy until there's a cause of death. Oh, no. Angelina almost immediately began referencing Oleander and antifreeze again after he died. Toxicologists then tested for Oleander and antifreeze after she suggested they do it. Dummy. Um, And it was determined that he ingested a massive dose of antifreeze four to six hours before he died. And then they said, like, he had so much antifreeze in his system, it was leaking out of his eyeballs. Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah. They were probably giving it to him in the Gatorade. In the soup. Oh my God. So a few weeks later, Angelina was arrested. She claimed that she received an anonymous call from someone who knew how Frank died, and that's how she thought about suggesting the antifreeze. Genius. Investigators never de- were able to determine how the antifreeze got into his system he had been dead for two days before they searched the house they found oleander plants but no antifreeze because he had drank it all Mm -hmm. so according to the los angeles county sheriff's department detective brian steinwand just the way we had to work the case we had to lie to her we had no witnesses our only witness was her she provided us the poisons the county toxicologists check for standard ones, but they don't check for oleander and antifreeze. We knew she was the only one alive that knew what poisons were used. As Angelina talked about Frank's last days, she allegedly didn't show any grief. She claimed that Frank killed himself because Angelina wanted a divorce. Likely story. Yeah. 
The marriage was so bad, Angelina said, that she was mixing painkillers and alcohol and would spend a lot of days crying and just sobbing. And she pointed all this pointed to her innocence, she says. Angelina's quoted, how could I have gotten that green goop into this intelligent man, she asks. I might have been depressed. I might have been sad, but I'm not an idiot. In October 2003, Angelina Rodriguez was convicted of first-degree murder with special circumstances, murder for financial gain, and attempting to dissuade a witness. Apparently, she'd threatened to kill one of the witnesses. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) She was not convicted for the charge of soliciting a murder because there was also a time where she was trying to get someone to do it for her. The following month, the jury rendered a verdict of death. Angelina was formally sentenced to death by lethal. In- <laughs> Angelina was formally sentenced to death by lethal injection on January twelfth, two thousand four. In her sentencing hearing, the judge stated that she killed her husband in a quote exceptionally cruel and callous way, and that her guilt had been proved to an absolute certainty. In the past twenty years, I have never seen a colder heart. Colder heart. So throughout this. The judge and prosecutor calling her like just this cold hearted lady. She killed her husband. Like That's what they all are. Icy. Icy, cold, cold. Yeah. No emotion. Yep. So despite her conviction and death sentence, Angelina maintained her innocence and maintained that her husband Frank's death was suicide by drinking antifreeze. Mm-hmm. After she was convicted, her, her family was devastated. Her mom passed away of emphysema and pulmonary disease shortly after she was sentenced to death. Her daughter, Autumn, who was 13 at the time of this article in 2005, was now 28. So is she now our age? No, she's your age, 27. You were 13 in 2005, right? I was 15. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Autumn is just, quote unquote, tortured by the possibility that, you know, while she was helping take care of Frank, that she gave him something with poison. Like, it just tortures, like, she help do it in a way oh no yeah and she recently told angelina that she never wants to see her again Gigi says that she completely cut off her sister angelina because angelina was requesting like care packages of like a tv a vcr expensive perfume but according to Gigi, like the family drained all of their savings to help fund her defense yeah and Gigi still struggles with guilt over not like rescuing her little sister from her grandfather. She couldn't cope with it, so she tried to escape. Gigi quoted, I don't think she had a true grip of reality. I think she was in a dream world. I don't, I think she made up stories and believed them and like truly believed them. So like her life was one giant disassociation, I feel like. In 2010, Angelina was awarded a new sentencing. So they were, so in California, there's automatic appeals, but the judge refused to seat to honor like the automatic appeal until 2009. So in 2010, she got a new sentencing hearing, but she was resentenced to death. Her most recent appeal was denied by the California Supreme Court in 2014. She remains on death row at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. But she is still planning to appeal her case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, I'd say she could have had an insanity defense. There was something... Yeah, there wasn't any, like, psychiatric evaluations done that I read about. And, you know, someone that goes through, like, like, it sounds like from two to, like, high school, that's, like, a decade and a half of sexual abuse from your grandfather. And then you get pregnant as a teenager from it and have an abortion. Your brain's not the same. So probably all that trauma had something to do with her judgment, of course. Right. And her reality and how she perceives it. So that was that. I can tell my date story. Decided to go on a, it was a hinge date. Damn it, I'm crunching into the mic. So I went on a hinge date on Thursday and uh, really not completely interested in this dude, but I was like, okay, whatever, I'll just go. He looks like his pictures. So I'm like, okay, I'm not catfish. He was cute, whatever. And I was telling a story about, like, I was just saying like, you know, I think college is like a scam. It's totally just causing more debt. And what, are you really getting better jobs than if you like learn to trade, you know? No, probably not, because if you learn a skill, blah, blah, blah. And I can't remember how I got to it, but it's like I got to the point where it's like, you know, on Welcome Week in colleges, all these credit card companies. So like, not only do you get like student loan debt, but because they approve you during Welcome Week, target college students, you get all this college debt. I mean, credit card debt. And he had said we had been talking about school before. And he goes, yeah, I tried so many different schools and just never finished a semester like it just wasn't for me. And I talked about that. And he goes... I don't really remember that, but I also didn't go to school in the United States. Okay. I was like, cool story, bro. Bye. 
Ish. Yeah, he was like, I went to nine different colleges and only did like one semester each, and none of them were in the U.S. And sounds like a real waste of time and bullshit. <laughs> yeah, totally, just full of bullshit. Completely, just so you were like, oh, my sister's picking me up, gotta go. Yeah. So, um, yeah, like time went on. We had a couple drinks, and I said, well, I think my sister's actually going to meet me here and pick me up. This was after he asked for two checks. <laughs> Douche. <laughs> It's like, don't suggest a place. Like, he suggested this place. Right. So, and then he left. I didn't even stand up when he left. I was like, okay, <laughs> yeah. see ya. Bye. Bye. Well, I had a massage yesterday, and Sarah was telling me, because I was like, I can take the deep tissue, and she was, like, working my muscles, and I have a lot of fucking tension. She's like, she's like, Jesus, does everyone in your family have this high of a threshold for pain? I was like, oh, most of the women, probably. And she's, um, a couple minutes later, she's like, I'm literally using techniques that I use on a 300 pound man. <laughs> and I was like, oh my feels God. amazing. So got some kinks out. I don't see when she was massaging me, I didn't feel like any pain or anything. Yeah, so I, I didn't was feel like, pain either. I was amazing. like, can you do it harder? Yeah. I'm literally I using I always techniques. say deep tissue. I'm using techniques I use on a 300 pound man. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh my God. Thanks for Happy listening. Valentine's Day, motherfuckers, because this will be Valentine's <laughs> week when it comes out. Oh, yeah. Happy Valentine's Day. Even if someone's like, oh, no, I don't participate that. But you guys have been talking or dating. You fucking do something because they're lying. They yeah. have an expectation. I don't care what they say. And if you don't have anyone who gives a shit, hopefully you have a dog or a cat. Just get drunk. Do whatever the fuck, fuck you, want. you want. It's bullshit. I'm hoping someone will send me one of those fucking drip by DD. Oh, you break open hearts. those things? I'm like, I'm dropping hints. Drop. Oh my gosh, aren't they cool? Yeah. I'm like, I don't know who, you but put anything somebody, in it. please, anybody, send me something. I don't give a shit. <laughs> no, we used to, mom used to like give these really cool baskets, like with DVDs and candy and stuff. I remember one time um, I got some sent to work from my boyfriend, and then another one came from my other boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh! Oh, man. And then one time from her, I don't remember what it was, I got flowers, but they weren't, they didn't have a name, and I was like, well, fuck, I don't know who it is, because, I mean, there's more than one person it could be. Oh, shit. But I mentioned it to the one person, and they took credit, but I had already figured out who sent it, and this <gasps> motherfucker took credit, and I knew they didn't send those fucking flowers. Oh, man. I'm going to say his name. Edward Nathaniel Newbill. I know you didn't send those flowers, you cheap fuck house prison. <laughs> <laughs> Is he really in prison? I don't know. I think maybe. He should be. Yeah. So, anyways, happy Valentine's Day. Chiefs are the world champions. And I don't have anything else. I don't either. That's it. That's All right. It. All right. Thank you. Review, Bye. Rate, oh, yeah. Podcast.com. No. It's going to be linked. Just look at the show notes. Everything's linked. Just Social look at media. the show notes. You we update really our just- website. You can just type in Winter Death Row and it'll come up, whatever. Thank you very much for listening. Super fucking awesome. And if you don't have a Valentine, we're your Valentine. We're your Valentine. Okay. Goodbye. See ya.